You're listening to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks direct from the stages of the Sydney Opera House, with me, your host, Edwina Throsby. It was an absolute joy to host acclaimed author Barbara Kingsolver during her first trip to Australia. This candid discussion at All About Women takes us from her early days as a scientist and a poet to the peak of her career as the writer of best-selling novels including The Poisonwood Bible. But it's her love for the natural world that really comes out in this completely charming session chaired by broadcaster Margaret Throsby. Barbara Kingsolver has been an activist and environmentalist all her adult life. As an author, Barbara has written poetry, essays, non-fiction and fiction. She was already a best-selling author when The Poisonwood Bible came out in 1998. Barbara Kingsolver has many awards and prizes to her name for her various books, including the Orange Prize for for Fiction, the National Humanities Medal, the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, the Physicians for Social Responsibility National Award. I just picked the eyes out of the awards. There's so many of them. She's been nominated for the Pulitzer and the Penn Faulkner. She's been on the New York bestseller list, I think, with every book since about 1993. So she's... um, a force to be reckoned with. Please welcome Barbara Kingsolver. Hello, Sydney Siders. <laughs> I can hardly see you. I have to I have to come out and look. There you are. <laughs> I've waited all my life. <laughs> this is true. This is my first, my very first trip to Australia. Uh, I waited until I could stay long enough to see a bit of your country. Um, I had to raise my kids first and send them off to university, which I just did. So here I am for five weeks. Um, that's the way to do it, right? Um, and so I'm smack in the middle of this trip, um, and I have already seen so much. I've done so many iconic Australian things. I have tasted your wines. I have hiked your mountains. I have swum your reefs. I have sun-damaged my skin. (laughs) Um, I have uh, already almost stepped on one dangerously venomous reptile. Only one. Um, The two things that my friend, everybody said back home when they found out I was coming to Australia were, number one, you know everything there wants to kill you. (laughs) Not true. And number two, will you get to see the Sydney Opera House? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting the full experience. Um, As a writer, of course, I love language, and so I have really enjoyed learning your language. It's not not the same as mine. You have things that uh, that surprise me. Um, A a server who says, we have a lovely salad today, it's got bugs in it. (laughs) They're they're like little lobsters. They're very delicious. Um, I've learned about bogans. 
<laughs> we don't have those in America. <laughs> Actually, I think we have a bogan in chief. Am I getting that word right? Okay. Okay, got it. What I love most about your language is what you have such a way with vowels. Um, Americans, you know, we kind of make an event of our vowels, and I notice this anytime I'm abroad, and then I come back to the States, and I hear all these people saying, quack, 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 like ducks. Our, a, our A's and our A's, and, uh, and I'm a Southerner. Um, I kind of tone it down when I travel, so I will be understood, but... Um, Southern Americans make an event of our vowels. Yes, hail, yes. Um, but you, you can make three syllables out of a two-letter word. No. 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 That's three vowels. It's mesmerizing. No. Um, and, and, you're, and you're such agreeable people, you know? Normally it's, no worries, mate, all good, uh, too easy. But if it's a no, I guess you need to make it an occasion of it. Um, so I thank you for all of it. Um, I am madly in love with your country, even though I've noticed you're not. Uh, <laughs> It's funny, um, you, the self-deprecation is just unknown to Americans. You know, you're just like, no, no, we're, we're not that, we're not that good. Um, uh, and, and of course, I know you've had dark chapters in your history, um, as all developed nations have. You have, um, um, you, you've had terrible racial and immigration policies, I do know that. But look how far you've come. Look at the party you had in this city celebrating, celebrating diversity and forward thinking. You, you, there, it, I, as I said, this, this self-deprecation, this sort of, sort of, this um, determination to criticize your country is, is, is so un-American, you know, it's unfamiliar to Americans. Um, so I want, I want to name two of many things that have enchanted me about your country that I really want you to know and to think about. One is your love and respect for the bush. You, um, you're, for your rural people and your rural culture, I, this is so touching for me, because I'm a rural person. I come from farm country, I live in farm country. And believe me, we are not respected in my country. The animosity and the contempt that urban liberals hold for, for our rural culture and our rural people is, is devastating. It's terrible, it's terrible for me to live with, and it's terrible for me to see how that's really tearing us apart. So I guess I'm, I'm offering this as a sort of a thank you and a, and, and a warning to take note, of, to, to maintain your love for your farmers and your farm heritage and your countryside because it's an important, um, it's an important piece of holding a country together. Um, and the second thing is your countryside, your biodiversity, um, I've, before I got to Sydney, 
Um, I've spent every single day here in absolute awe of your biodiversity. You, you've, you're a fairly unpopulated country and you figured out how to protect your, your wilderness before you destroyed it all. That is extraordinary. That's almost un, un, uh, unparalleled in the world. Um, my husband is here with me traveling and he's also a biologist. And I mean, we're just, we're just biodiversity dweebs. We just walk around with our, with our binoculars and our jaws hanging open. We are entranced by your cockatoos and your kookaburras and your karawongs. We've hiked in your Gondwana forests. We've seen the Antarctic beech trees, these ancient, these ancient beautiful forests. We've seen your rainforests. We've seen kangaroos of all shapes and sizes, including the smallest member of the kangaroo family. Do you know what it is? It's not a wallaby. It's not a patamelon. It's the musky rat kangaroo. Do you know that? Okay, who's, who here has seen a musky rat kangaroo? Nobody? Oh yeah, okay. Besides my husband, you don't count. <laughs> They're like, they're like a hamster or like a, a guinea pig. And then they get up and they hop away in the forest. So um, they live up in the Dane tree. Um, it's enchanting. Um, but I have to say my favorite part of the trip so far uh, is the four days we spent on the Great Barrier Reef. We went out to an island where you can stay and just swim out into the reef. And we spent every hour we could in the water, seeing the outer reef and the inner reef. And there is so much astonishing life still there. What we hear about, where, you know, all over the world, and I'm sure what you hear about is how it's dying, it's dying, it's dead. Um, of course, to some extent, this is, you know, we need to hear this. Climate change is terrifi terrifyingly real. Bleaching is a fact. We saw that. We also saw living systems as far as we could see in every direction. We saw giant clams and sparkling constellations of living corals and reef fish and nursery reefs where millions, millions of new vertebrates and invertebrates were being regenerated. And the most, um, the most diverse and lively ocean ecosystem in the world. You've got that. You have that still. And so if there's one thing I can tell you this morning that you'll remember, I would like it to be this. So much is still alive. You still, we still have so much to love. Please don't give up on this world. Please go see that. Please go see all of these things. Uh, please get your children, if you have them, out into this world of biodiversity you have, because if we love it hard, we can still save it. Um, okay, keep the promise. Um, so I'm here to talk about love and food and fiction. I didn't make up that title. I only learned it when I, my husband said, look at this, this website. Our dog is on the, on the Sydney Opera House <laughs> website. Um, <laughs> he was. Um, so, so I did, and I saw that my, the name of my talk was Love, 
food and fiction. And so I thought, that's a little tame. So I, call, I called them up and I said, could we make it love, food, and fiction as modes of insurrection? And she said, oh, no worries. Of course, too easy. Um, <laughs> so let's do that. I'm down for that. Um, and what that means to me is that the choices we make every day about what we love, whom we love, and even the food that we eat, even what we feed our families, all of these choices are personal choices that are also political choices that ultimately have the power to change the world. I think that's a rather feminine viewpoint, um, and it's mine, and it forms the heart of my fiction. So um, that's my hello. Um, how far in are we? 15 minutes? I, um, Next, I'm going to take a seat and do a conversation, uh, and then we'll I'll have a conversation with you. They, they always ask that you do a, a reading, and so I could do a very short reading. I brought some poems because they're so short. Um, should I read a couple of poems? Yes, okay. And most people haven't, haven't, aren't, don't know my poems because I did publish a poetry book, and I think like 75 people bought it. Um, <laughs> so... Um, None of you here, I think, is in that number. So, um, okay, I'll read three little poems that, that sort of speak to the, the theme of this day. Um, they are all about women. The first is my, uh, I guess, my answer to the Titian nude, the sort, of, the sort of portrait of the nude woman seen with the male eye that I grew up, you know, sort of understanding as the view of the female body. Um, it took me a long time to figure out we see female bodies in our own way. Uh, and so this poem is called, based on real-life experience, called Six Women Swimming Naked in the Ocean. Twelve breasts, round as... Oh, I should also say, five friends, four bottles of wine. Um, <laughs> six women swimming naked in the ocean. Um, Twelve breasts, round as the pendulum moon over us and milky like that, changeable as the lunar egg, breasts that have waxed and waned, answering the tides and tugs that rule the world, men and children, bosoms that heave with passion and with impatience, but here in the midnight ocean, they just float, like jellyfish, like life buoys. Bottles flung out with a message inside, we topple and crash in dark salt waves, tumbled like so much sandy laundry. We sing out names, keeping an eye on each other, identified by our headlamps. Twelve pale moons, jugs, boobs, hooters. We've been called so many things, have come from so many places. An hour ago, we were all such different people, modest or illustrious or provisional, with no idea we had this thing in common, standard equipment, lovely pontoons to carry us to freedom. Um, okay, I've, I've raised two daughters, and so um, I paid a lot of attention to female adolescents, and to just to adolescents in general. 
So this is called, this is a more recent poem, although my daughters have both passed well beyond adolescence, I'm happy to say. Um, this is called How to Be 12 Years Old. Um, is, can you hear me okay if I walk away from the podium? Yeah, okay, I just, I don't like to be tethered. Um, plus, I, d I don't like to stand behind that. It's, it's, it makes it seem like I know more than you do, which I actually don't. Okay, how to be 12 years old. If female, call to attention on the bathroom counter your first battalion of bottles, astringents and creams, anti-frizz, anti-shine, anti-dull, the standing army, this, of course, is war. <laughs> Gaze fiercely into the mirror, the enemy sworn to defeat you. Gaze at your parents, ditto. <laughs> Shove six to ten books under your pillow, including but not limited to textbooks, and be careful not to read them. They are boring. Send 119 text messages to complain that the books are boring. Eat only foods that do not occur in nature. <laughs> this is important. Read magazines about what to eat. <laughs> if male, reflect on your years to date and make no adjustments <laughs> until further notice. Eventually, you will be apprised of certain necessities, possibly by your wife. I love little boys. I love little boys. Um, I, my older daughter has, has uh, a little boy now. He's 18 months old, and I'm having a whole new experience of, of uh, you know, of the wonder. Um, and, and, and I think part of the point of that poem is that it is a lot of work to become a woman, and maybe it shouldn't be. Um, there are ways that we could make it simpler. So I'm going to finish off with this poem. Uh, which I wrote 35, 38 years ago. I was a girl when I wrote this poem, and it has not become obsolete, I'm sad to say. It's called Reveille. I am the woman whose flesh does not move when she walks. The nippleless, the bloodless, sweatless woman who cries copious tears from the pressure of all other prohibited secretions. I am painted in the colors of no flower that ever really bloomed. I do not smell like any living thing. I am the woman at war with body hair, who curls her Asian hair, who straightens her African hair, garnishes her eyelids with hair, and removes it from her eyebrows, pursues it and relentlessly destroys it, engaged in war with her mammalian origins." Literally, you have seen me a million times. The radically altered female who doesn't stand out in the crowd of radically altered females, I remain because the potential of my body is a universe. If I should abandon this battle and turn my pious fury on something less persistent, more conquerable than my sex, if I should go away to war and leave my fields behind, unmowed, unmanicured, and let the weeds spring up, if I were to become the animal that I am, then what?
35 years ago you wrote that? Yeah, I was a kid. I was, that was one of my earliest poems. So it was when, let me think, if you think well, back 35 years. Well, I was 80s. just like in my early, yeah, early 20s. But I'm just trying yeah. to think of where we were at with feminism mm. then. So yeah, well, I was, I, was a, I was a waking up feminist. I was, um, I, um, I discovered, you know, the, the second wave. I s discovered Gloria Steinem and um, those wonderful Robin Morgan and the feminine mystique, Germaine Greer. I discovered those writers, I think, my first year in college after spending my whole adolescence thinking just vague, unspecified thoughts about how I felt locked in a closet stuffed with cotton all around me when I, th when I thought about my future. I couldn't even see it. Um, uh, all I knew of the world is that men drove the airplanes and women wore high heels and served the cocktails. And that was like women who got to have jobs. Most women, uh, most of the girls I knew, all the girls I knew were going to be farmers' wives, um, which is a job. But um, in terms of sort of prospects or opportunities, I had grown up feeling stultified. And I didn't know why, because I, I didn't really know who was writing the rules. I just knew I lived under them. I lived you lived in a family of professional people, and you had that extraordinary... Mm -mm. No? Mm -mm. Your father was no. a physician? No. My father was a physician. My mother was a, a housewife. My okay. mother's whole goal in life was to support my husband, and that she Your was father. a product of that post... Mm -hmm post-World War II American generation of women who were just pushed into the home by every, every okay. available propaganda, a force of propaganda, who really were made to feel it was their choice to be the woman behind the man, to raise children. Raising children and cooking was a profession. It was not a job my mother enjoyed, but she still had to do it. Did she rail against it? She was miserable. But if you'd asked her, she would have said, I love being a housewife because you had to. I don't yeah. know. There is no, worse, um, there is no worse prison than the one you've, you've, you've put yourself into yes. for reasons you don't understand. And I didn't understand either. I just knew I had to get out of there. I was one of the only people in my... I li lived in a really little town. Um, in Kentucky. In Kentucky, in a rural place. None of my friends was going to college. Nobody I knew was going to college. They didn't tell you how to do that in my high school. You, they just expected you to, you know, marry, get pregnant and marry quickly. And I just, the only thing I knew for sure is I just got to blow out of here somehow. Mm. So I got a scholarship and I went to college and I started, I fell in with these like communist friends, you know, these... <laughs> Women wearing, you know, flannel shirts with really short hair and giving me books about vaginas. And I just like... <laughs> it's like coming to Australia. Wow! <laughs> um, so um, so I started... Can I interrupt you? You had had that one... Was it seminal experience of being taken with the family to Africa for a well, year? Well, yeah, yes. I had seven. Yeah, I had lived in other places. My, my dad... See, my, my parents came from um, working-class people and had not... You know, my father's... No one in my father's family had ever finished 
high school uh, before, or even maybe eighth grade. So he broke um, them all there. So he, but he was this very odd, extremely peculiar, uh, smart child who just like talked his way into into college, and and then he got to go to medical medical school on this bargain, where afterward he would be um, a part of something like maybe it's part maybe it's like what you call royal flying doctors, or he would just give his life to sort of serving populations that needed doctors. So you didn't go to Africa because he had a brain snap and said, we're going to go to Africa. Not exactly. Well, we lived most of our, most of my childhood, we lived in, in eastern Kentucky, you know, in a little town where he was the only doctor and it was very poor and, you know, his services were badly needed. But now and again, we would um, go out to a place like the central Congo and live in a place where even fewer people had, you know, like nobody had plumbing or electricity. And we lived there for a year. And I mean, my, it was an unusual childhood. My, my brother and sister and I were pretty much left to fend for ourselves because my mom was really, really busy being the woman behind the man. And he was a, he was a man who needed a lot of support. He just kind of didn't take care of anything else. Um, (laughs) Um, and, you know, occasionally I think they looked at each other and said, we have children, right? Um, but, but you could, some people would look on that as, in retrospect anyway, as a gift. I mean, you were... A, it, was a, it, was a, it was a double... It was a curse and a gift. Um, to, to learn to be... Neglect, extra, yeah, but yeah, it was a benign neglect in a place that has spitting cobras is a mixed <laughs> blessing. <laughs> Just saying. Yes. But... Um, but no, we did survive, and we learned to we we learned to be extremely self sufficient and to be autodidacts. We spent these times because we also went to an island in the Caribbean where uh, my dad worked in a, uh, a hospital that was run by these nuns in this convent in the jungle, and we were just like left to run free in the jungle. Um, so you know, I, I love jungles. Um, um, so we, we didn't spend time in school. You know, school was just not really a big part of my growing up. But books were. I, anytime I got hold of books, I read books. So, um, so I learned to teach myself um, whatever I needed to know, which has turned out to be ultimately after a lot of different chapters of uh, sort of sort of career possibilities has turned out to be such a great, it's such a great prerequisite for being a novelist because to be an author, you know, the root of that is authority. You have to become an authority on an entirely new topic every time you start a new book. It's like getting a dissertation, you know, doing a dissertation in some new subject. So, but along the way, I didn't know I was being an autodidact. I was just thought I was surviving. So, so that's when I got to, when I got out of this, um, sort of rural, stultified, stultifying social uh, system and discovered feminism. I had a name. I understood power structure. And I understood, for the first time, I understood what my mom's problem was. And I felt sorry for her instead of being so mad, mm. um, which was good, you know. What about your entry into the world as a fiction writer? I think there's a, there's a story attached to that. Can I remind you of a a competition that was run by a newspaper in Phoenix that you won, a short story competition? Oh, I won the short story. That was, you know, years as an adult, I had started sending 
Uh, short story. I had started sending poems and stories to literary magazines. Did you think of yourself primarily as a poet who was writing fiction or a fiction writer who was writing poetry? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I, I can't do it. I know it sounds wrong to you. I'm, I keep trying. Wait till you get to Adelaide. They've got a different way of saying no. <laughs> okay. It won't even give me a chance. Um, um, no, no, I didn't think of myself as a writer at all. I was, okay, I always loved reading. I just, I was a ravenous reader. I read everything I could, could find as a kid, including the Encyclopedia Britannica, because it was there, and my dad's medical texts, because we found them in the basement. I would say we, you know, my brother and I got an advanced education from those. And, um, and, uh, and I loved writing, I think partly because I you know, had this solitary, peculiar childhood and not a lot of socialization. I wrote in a diary every day, every day, since I was about eight years old. You still do that? Well, now I sort of write books instead, but I do keep journal. When I travel, I keep journals. Yeah, uh, um, I'm still a journal writer. I, w writing is the way that I process experience and understand it and kind of nail it to the bank. You know, this 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 ex river of experience that just feels like it's running away from me. That's my way of kind of pinning it down so that I can keep it. So yeah, I was always writing, but in the time and place I grew up, you, you would not say you were gonna be a writer. Nobody I knew was gonna be a writer mm. when they grew up. Did, uh, um, just by the way, going to university with that sort of revelation of feminism, would you say that politicized you at that point or radicalized you at that point? It, start, it, was, it, was, a star, it was a start. I mean, I think I, I grew up just watching Watching my parents be the people they were, what I learned from my father was an ethic of service. I mean, even though he wasn't paying much attention to us, he wanted the world to be better. He wanted to help people. Uh, and I saw how gratifying it was to him to go to places and do things, you know, just very, you know, specific, hands-on things that helped people have better lives. And, and he also loved nature very much. And he gave me that sort of wonder and awe. He, he really enjoyed jungles too. Um, so... Um, I want this, the phoenix story. What happened? Uh, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> All right. Yeah. How much time do we have? We've got um, <laughs> seven minutes. <laughs> okay. No, we will. Um, so, so I learned from him just sort of how it can make you happy to, to serve the world, to engage with the world and its troubles. And what I learned from my mother is find work, you know, find a job that makes you happy or, you know, sort of. So I wanted to, be, I, I think what I learned was financial independence is key. And I, you know, I just, I wouldn't have said it that way, but I saw how she had no independence because she had no money of her own. Um, so I just, I never cared about money. I never needed to have very much. I, I still don't. Um, but, um, it, you know, it falls on me and I'm amazed um, <laughs> and grateful and find somebody, you know, I can give it to. But um, what was important to me was to be able to take care of myself. So when I got to go to college, I felt very lucky and I thought I better learn something that, that will be useful in the world and I can make a living. So I studied biology 
Um, but I still wrote, but I w and I had friends who were studying humanities and poetry and taking these wonderful writing classes, which looked really lots of fun, but I couldn't do that because I was going to make, I needed to make a living. So um, I got a degree in biology, did, you know, other things, worked as a biologist, went to grad school in ecology and evolutionary biology, was writing all along, and had actually started in my 20s to send poems and stories to literary magazines. And there was a, 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 a like a daily, like an alternative daily, or, or alternative weekly. Do you have those here? Yeah. Uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. I was living in Arizona then. That had a fiction contest. And I thought, oh, heck, why not? I, I uh, um, entered the contest. I sent this story called Why I Am a Danger to the Public. I had... <laughs> I'd written it, it was about, uh, uh, I, had, I was working at a, as a, as a, I did some work as a journalist and I covered a mine strike and I learned about these women miners who were just so fierce and wonderful. So I wrote this story and I entered the contest and then, you know, heard nothing as you wouldn't. And um, then like six months later, I was talking to a friend and she was telling me about this great story she'd read and, you know, she, the more detail, she said, you'd love this story. And the more details, the more I said, I freaking wrote that story. Where did you read that story? She said, I don't know. Let me think. And then she thought, oh, I think I read it in, you know, the... the Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. And so I called them up and I said, excuse me, um... I am Barbara Kingsolver. Did you by any chance publish? And they said, oh, yeah, you won that contest. We tried to call you. We didn't get an answer. Oh. I, I wasn't home. Okay. <laughs> you called back, for heaven's sake. So um, That was the beginning of the great career. That, that was the <laughs> beginning of my brilliant career, a missed phone call. But... Um, but no, I made them um, publish it again so that I could buy <laughs> a copy of the newspaper and, 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 get, and, and claim my prize, which was, I don't know what, $500. But I mean, it was, there were these moments. I also sent a short story to um, the Virginia Quarterly Review, which was a good, quite good literary magazine. And they wrote back immediately and said, we love this short story, what else have you written? So I got these sort of surprising uh, echoes from, you know, I felt like I was just sending out messages in the bottle because I'm not a writer. I'm not ever going to be a writer. But I kept getting these little hints from the world that, yeah, maybe but I you was. you are a writer. And, yeah, so, so I, but it took me until my early 30s to write in my journal, in all caps, this is so silly, it sounds adolescent, but I wrote I am a writer. It was terrifying. It was like a confession, first to myself and then to the world. I, I am. And do you feel comfortable now saying yeah. I am a writer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about today. Um, and I want, I want to get your thoughts on literature as a forum for political expression. Well, it's not a forum... Or as a um, mode of, I don't. It's, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky to talk about because it has been just like, just in the same way that the, the language of, it's hard to write about sex because 
the language has been co-opted by either pornography uh, or the medical establishment. So, you know, it's, it's hard to find new language. Likewise, political art has been, you know, sort of the notion of it has been co-opted by, it's sort of been accused at least in my country, of being bad, of being pamphleteering. So for so many years, since the McCarthy era, um, when people got very afraid of it and de declared it dangerous... Well, there was a schism then, really, wasn't there? Yeah, well, I mean, people who, who addressed issues of the day in their art got put in jail mm. or they lost their their they lost uh their capacity to be published or or to be uh in the movies or whatever they lost their jobs they lost lost their livelihoods it was a terrifying time because of the power of art art was um i don't want to say uh castrated that'd be too male it was eviscerated art lost its 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 political soul and we've been recovering in the US ever since so there is this sort of knee-jerk reaction that people have to the notion of art as, you know, a political forum that, oh, it's, it's not going to be any good. It's going to be a pamphlet. That's really silly. Art can be really beautiful and well-crafted and still engage with the issues of the world. And it does all over the world. If you look at who's winning Nobel Prizes in literature, it is always, it's, it's Nadine Gordimer, you know, it's, uh, it's Saramago, it's, it's, um, it's people who are paying attention to the world as it is and thinking about the world as it could be. And, uh, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, is a hero of mine. Pablo Neruda. These artists who who see themselves as um, social visionaries. Um, yeah, I know, I'm watching That's all right, I'm, I'm um, So, sorry, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, um, so that's who I want to be, you know, that's who I want to be when I grow up. That's what I've always wanted to do, is imagine the world, um, think of art as a way of encouraging people to imagine humane possibilities and to examine the, the power structures that are causing problems as they are, because people do this all over the world. It's just tricky in America because, uh, you know, when you do it, then you go out on tour and the interviewers say, can you really do that? Are you allowed to do that? Mm. Well, yeah, you are. However, you have to do it beautifully. You have to do it carefully. I think it's so important to remember that literature is one of the few... Um, few forms of language that isn't instructive per se. You know, we're surrounded all the time by words that are telling us what to do, what to buy, what to be, what to wear, um, who we want to be, and literature doesn't do that. Literature asks you who you want to be. It asks you questions, um, ideally, that you've never asked yourself before, and it it walks you through um, passages of other lives that help you find your way to your own answer. And for that reason, every one of you could read the same book and have a different experience. Mm. Because you, that, I mean, when I write a book, I've done half the work. You read the book, you do the other half. It's participatory. So 
literature is meant to ask questions. And so that's why I sort of recoiled from the word forum, although, I don't know, I mean, I guess a forum technically is like a theater, is it? It's a place it? to, 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 to discuss, yeah. I guess. Yeah, so it, yeah, so I guess that's okay. It's, um, yeah, I think of, I think of fiction, particularly in theatrical terms, I'm, I, I, I'm sort of, and also in scientific terms, I sort of create an experiment. You know, I, I come up with a hypothesis. If this, then maybe that. Uh, I construct a plot that will sort of lead my my readers into this process of examining, you know, some big question about the world, like why is it so difficult for us to talk about climate change? That was the question of flight behavior. Um, how can we reconcile ourselves to what one country will do to another? In the case of the Congo, mm. um, that was the poison, the poison of the Bible. Mm. So, um, 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 so I, I construct a plot that will ask this question, and then I cast it with characters who will um, who will act out this question. Do you ever find, as I've found with in interviewing authors, and it always it's always intrigued me that authors sometimes say that characters take on a life of their own and do what they want to do, and you can somehow not be in control. You don't. Not mine. Not uh -uh. yours. <laughs> no. I'm the boss. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you do you know from when you start saying once upon a time what it's going to be on the last page? I do. You do. I do. Yeah. I'm a very I'm a very architectural writer. I need to know what I'm writing about because if I don't, I can't imagine you will, right? <laughs> so I mean, I feel like it's a, it's a, as a, as a service to my readers, I need to really think carefully about what I mean to say. But you also so. use overlapping narratives and different voices, sure. don't you? Sure, and that's, yeah, but that's all part of the architecture. I mean, I don't know every single thing that's going to happen, but I kind of, I know the, I know the arc. I know okay. the narrative arc. And so I have to put characters in there who are going to serve my plot. And it's funny because people always assume that characters are based on, you know, my friends or family, real people, and they're not. First of all, because I would like my friends and family to remain my friends and family. <laughs> um, but also because the, the people I know are not that cooperative. Mm. They, I, I need to invent characters who will do exactly what, what you want them to I do. want them to do. Now, that means creating them as whole people. And so I have to think backward and think about everything in their lives that has made them the people they are in this moment. And sometimes I will get to a point where a character sort of doesn't want to do, like, for example, my first novel in the Bean Trees. There's oh, I this, love that this girl who who um, is trying to get the heck out of a little Kentucky town before she gets pregnant, like all of her friends. And so she's just, you know, she's on this road trip in this in her little broken car, and. On this road trip, someone gives her a baby, which is just the last thing she wanted. And uh, so she ends up, and, and you know, the, in the circumstances, she sort of had to take it. But when I, got to, and then, when I got to that point in the novel, the character, Taylor Greer, said, no, no way. No. Uh, why? No. Um, <laughs> why? No, she didn't say that. She said, no. -uh. Um, <laughs> She she just didn't want it just didn't make sense for her to take that baby and so that and that was my first novel and I was still working out how do you do this and I was thinking okay 
How do you make a character do something they don't want to do? Well, like I, for example, would not jump out of a third story window unless the room was on fire. So you have to build a fire behind your character. You have to back up and you have to create circumstances yeah. behind this action. So she took the baby. She needed to take the baby because if she didn't, then there would be no novel. And um, <laughs> so... Um, and a no yeah. sequel either. It's... Yeah. it's um, and if you haven't read The Bean Trees, I read it this week, and it was your first novel. It was. It's just, it's just, I thought it was just the most wonderful read. Well, I appreciate that because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, well, I mean, it I felt think, like you I, did. I think that I do now, but I didn't, I didn't yeah. even know. I wrote the whole thing while I was pregnant because I didn't have time in my life to write a novel. I, was, I had other jobs. You know, I was working full-time, but when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I... Uh, had terrible insomnia. I just didn't sleep very much at all. And I, my doctor said, well, you should um, do really boring things, like you should uh, scrub the bathroom grout with a toothbrush, you know, to clean it so you'll be bored and go to sleep. And I thought, to heck with that. I'm going to write a novel. Um, and, but truly, that was so precious, those hours. Nobody, nobody is ever going to pay you to write your first novel. This is just, I'll just tell you this, if you were thinking they would. Um, you have to carve somehow out of your life those hours. And mine were carved out of sleep. But I had nine months, a hard deadline. Uh, my daughter cooperated by being a 10-month pregnancy. She was three weeks late. Thank God. Because... I got the novel finished. I really didn't think it was very good. Um, I had no idea. I didn't think anybody but my dog and me would ever see it, and he couldn't read. And um, so, so uh, in a fit of cleaning, before I went into uh, labor, I uh, thought, oh, I could throw it in the trash. I mean, honestly, I'm not making this up. I, I, I need to clean off the desk. I could throw it in the trash or I could put it in an envelope and send it to this lady in New York. So I did the latter and I put a note on it that started with, I'm sorry. Uh, this, I don't know if this is a novel, but you know, you might, maybe. So she wrote back to say, yeah, it is. It is. And it was. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and then that was, that was the beginning. And so the same day I had my daughter... I, uh, I got a contract for the publication Fantastic. of my first novel. Fantastic. Wow. Wow. Barbara, do you, do you think the Me Too movement would have happened... I mean, we all trace it back to Harvey Weinstein and the, and the revelations that were made about him. Farther back. Trump? I trace it to Trump. Do you? Yeah, because... Because of um, what he said about pussy-grabbing or different? Yeah, thanks. Um... <laughs> Because of who he is and what he represents and the body of, uh, of the American public who still put him in office, um, there was so much anger from young women. And the day uh, after he was inaugurated. The day after he was inaugurated, that anger flooded the streets and the, and, and the streets of Sydney as well. I saw yes. the pictures. The whole world was flooded with really angry women in knitted pink hats. It was that, and that was a beautiful image. Um, that anger had to go somewhere. And, I, and, and I'll back up a little more and say that, um, you know, okay, I was, you know, I, I, I was, I, I woke up in, in my, uh, in my twenties and I've been a feminist ever since. And I have worked, 
uh, hard to raise my daughters as feminists. And I've been so depressed that that, that poem I wrote in my 20s is still the poem that you know, I, I gave to my daughters. And the talk that I had with my daughters about how uh, you need to say to this boy in the fourth grade, don't do that. I hate that, and how difficult it is to say that, hadn't changed one iota since I was in the, in the fourth grade. Nothing seemed to have changed. Well, that would speak of a failure of feminism then. Well, I don't... It's not a failure if, 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 if you're trying to swim up a really steep river, you know, you can't blame yourself for not getting anywhere. It's, I mean, the forces, of, the forces of, of patriarchy and of capitalism are extremely powerful. We have tried, but I will also say that there is a generation, there was a generation of women who grew up feeling complacent, feeling that they lived in a post-feminist world, feeling like, no, things aren't really that bad because we're just bathed in this, this ocean of misogyny so we don't even recognize it. Why is it that almost all of my, my daughter's friends who married, who were, you know, smart, independent young women, when they married, they erased their names. They got, you know, walked down the aisle by one patriarch, handed over to the other patriarch, and erased their names. And, I mean, no offense if you did that, I understand, but erased their names and took the name of the new patriarch exactly as used to happen when enslaved people went to a new mm. plantation and were given the name of the owner. I mean, I'm not saying marriage is slavery, but these, these <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> what I'm saying is that we don't even see these symbols that we're preserving of our nothinghood. Mm. And so... I mean, it's just so ubiquitous, we don't recognize what we're, the world we're living in. And so, so many, my daughters are both feminists, but they would tell me, my, my friends don't think they're feminists because they think that means we hate men and we don't hate men. No, mm. it means you love men very enough, yeah. enough for us all to sh have a shared humanity. I mean, I get emotional about this. It was so frustrating to see my daughters growing up into the very same world of misogyny. And, and very little has changed in terms of uh, pay equity. Look at my Congress. It's old white men in suits. Yes. Okay, it, that's what it is. How can we call this a post-feminist era? What it took was this creep who bragged about pussy grabbing getting the majority of the male electorate support in my country, and quite a few women too. When, when these young women saw that's where we really live, they said, I don't know what I'm allowed to say here, but... You can say whatever you want. Fuck! You know, <laughs> like, oh, shit. Yeah. You know, it was really a huge, oh, star, star, star moment. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was just a shock. It's like the bottom dropped out of what a lot of young women believed about the world they lived in and who's looking after them mm. or who's not. And so those were... I mean, it was just so thrilling to see all of those women of all generations together in the streets in a very inclusive way, talking about how our movement is the same as 
as, yeah. uh, you know, as, as, yeah, the inclusiveness of this movement is very encouraging to the me. The bloody clock's telling me that I've got a call for questions. So, okay, yeah. I, I want to hear from you. If you have a question, there are mics at the side, up there and up there, I think. And we will remind you, before you ask, ask yourself, what is a question? I think we can all conclude that everybody here loves Barbara, so rather than stand up and say, Barbara, I really, really love what you do, a question would be great. So if you have, there's one there and one there. Does anybody have a question or are you happy for me to continue? Yes. Yep. Okay. Hello. So we're not allowed to sing your praises, so that's a given. Um, you talked about loving the Barrier Reef and how we focus on the bleaching and the sad story, and that's sort of mainly because in Australia we have this sort of she'll-be-right attitude that we're scared of because if we think everything's going to be okay, no-one's going to protect that beautiful bit. So how do you reconcile both? Because we're almost too scared to say, it's all great, it's so beautiful, because then that will be a licence to continue to put all yeah. the runoff on it and build question. a dani. Well, yeah, I see, and I can see that there are differences sort of internally and externally. What I kept hearing, what I hear mostly from the outside is, it's all dead. And what, what I'm afraid of in the sort of extremely pessimistic view uh, of the world is that we'll just give up. What I'm talking about is hope. The strategies we can construct for maintaining hope, because... Hope is everything. It's, it's a renewable resource. Uh, I mean, what we're up against, as I said, you know, fe feminism, feminism hasn't failed. Environmentalism hasn't failed. We have just only started to, co to, to, to make this steep climb that we have to make. But, um, and, and, it, and it's good to get angry. It's good to get emotional. But, but that all has to hinge on love and the belief that there is still enough left that we need to protect it. Um, if you run out of hope at the end of the day, here's my advice. Get up in the morning and put it on again with your shoes because you're going to need it. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I read a quote yesterday saying that a, the, definition, the difference between a pessimist and an optimist is a pessimist says things couldn't get worse. An optimist says, yes, they could. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they could. And, and to give up hope is, I call that an institutionalized child abuse. If you quit trying, look what you're doing to your children, to our children, That's to our grandchildren. That's a lovely thought, actually, yeah. I think it was David Suzuki's daughter who gave a speech in Rio when she was 12, and she said that we're the... Our generation is the first in history to ask their children to sacrifice for them rather than that they sacrifice for their children. I think we've got time for one more. One Unfortunately, more. the clock's A last us. question. Yes, over there. Um, you talk about love and food as modes of insurrection. We all know that there are things that we can change in our lives to make the world a better place, to reduce waste, to reduce consumption. What's the best way to amplify those personal changes into a tangible and significant change in the world? Um... The, there's not a best way for everybody. There's a best way for you. Um, you start in your neighborhood. 
Um, you, may, you make these choices um, for yourself and your family to convince yourself that you could live in a world that is more resourceful, that behaves more kindly. And once you're convinced of that, you broaden your scope. You work in your neighborhood. You talk to your neighbors, even the ones who you know might not agree with you. Um, you vote for your, lo you work on your local council level. You vote. Uh, you get to the box, uh, you get to the voting box. You run for office yourself if you are built that way, um, if you think you could do it. Um, most importantly, you try every way you, every time you can to speak across these divides. It's so tempting in the modern world for us to talk to ourselves and to, to sort of uh, build build our neighborhoods of, of sort of social media and, and, and social sort of networks of people who all agree with, our, with us, that's not getting us anywhere. We need to speak with people who don't agree with us. It's scary, but we have to find ways to do it. And we have to do it with love and respect. Nobody will take information from a person they don't trust. No, you can't convince anyone of anything unless they trust you. So if you open a conversation with, you bogan, <laughs> you know, or you idiot, that conversation is over. If you begin with, I think we might have something in common here. If you break bread with someone who doesn't agree with you and open a conversation and try in all different ways to breach that divide, then you'll get somewhere. And, and of course, fiction is a wonderful way to do that. Reading, reading fiction, getting together, talking about books. Um, stories, stories will save us in the end. I promise. Yeah. Beautiful, thank you. That was Barbara Kingsolver winning over our hearts and our minds. She was with Margaret Throsby. And the All About Women Love keeps on coming next week. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast app your heart desires.